This is Marie Valindo and Emma Rothman, and you're listening to The Archives, brought to you by the Resource Center at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Chicago author and longtime radio host Studs Terkel once called George Armstrong one of the unsung musicologists of our time. Yeah, I really love that quote. Um, but the only amendment I would make, probably, is I would call George and Jerry, both of them, more ethnomusicologists than musicologists. Um, as I understand it, the main difference is that ethnomusicology is mostly based on fieldwork, of going out, meeting people, and making recordings, uh, which they did a lot. Yeah, um, Jerry and George, um, always along with their children, Becky and Jenny, most, most of the time. I'd say so. Um, took regular trips around the country and the British Isles, uh, including several to Beach Mountain, North Carolina, home of the Hicks family and their relatives, Frank Prophet and Lee Monroe Presnell, a close-knit clan of uh, mountain folk carrying on the folk traditions of the southern Appalachian region. Bad news. 
heard uh, some music from a 1963 trip the Armstrongs took uh, to Beach Mountain to the home of Lee Monroe Presnell, who they fondly called Uncle Monroe. Uh, and they, were, they definitely weren't the only people visiting the Hicks clan. Um, uh, an author, Robert Isabel, um, wrote a really amazing book called The Last Chivalry, which I think is how you pronounce that word. Um, that Chivalry. Chivalry, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That sort of, it reads almost like a novel, and it's centered mostly around Ray Hicks, um, who is a celebrated teller of Jack Tales. Um, and it tells, it tells about, like, the, the entire family, and also uh, folklore and folk song collectors Anne and Frank Warner, uh, who I think were friends and great inspirations of George and Jerry. Um, they had uh, quite close relationship with the Hicks family as well, um, especially Frank Prophet. Um, and they first recorded Tom Dooley, which ended up being this, like, you know, really big song for the Kingston Trio, but the original recording came from Frank Prophet, who got it from his father, who knew the people that the song was about. Um, yeah. Frank Prophet was the OG, basically. Basically. <laughs> um, so what are Jack Tales? Jack Tales are like Jack and the Beanstalk. Like, Jack Tales, they always are about Jack, and Jack goes on some adventure. Or Jack and the Three Sillies, or Jack and the something, something, something. Mm, okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Stories were um, a big part of the traditions that they experienced, and some of which they recorded in their time in Beach Mountain and, and the Appalachians, right? Yeah, definitely. Stories as well as song. You know, it seems like there's a lot of both of those, and that it's all sort of just... Part of it, you know, they'll play a song, the other song tell a story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, Jerry actually wrote a really interesting article in Comfort to Sing, which was a publication uh, put out by the Old Town School about uh, folk tales and storytelling, the importance of storytelling. And she talks about uh, these things called uh, canter tales, which are songs that, ha- or which are stories that have songs in them. Uh, which I think is really interesting, and she also um, in that same in that same article she talks about a story that comes out of a song that they almost collected from Lee Monroe or Uncle Monroe um, that he never actually learned the tune to because he was too scared of the song as a child to sing it. Um, but we actually have a recording of um, of him telling that story. Uh, and sort of the nugget of the story is that um, a girl lived near an Indian reservation and she was hiding in a fort and six Indians came to attack her, I suppose, and um, she cut off or shot or somehow led them to their death, six, six of them, and the seventh went away and later she fell in love with the seventh one and he took her near some water and um, he said, "You did you kill 
uh, Indians with blue eyes, and she said, yes, I did. And she, he says, well, you killed six of them, and now you will be the seventh to go. Those are my brothers. And she says, no. Uh, she, like, tricks him somehow and says, no, I killed six, and you will be the seventh, um, which is apparently a take on um, one of the Lady Isabel and the elf, elf knight stories. Um, yeah, so here is some of Lee Monroe talking about that story. Good luck um, understanding. <laughs> but one of them threw him up and poked his head in, and she had a bow axe. She wild didn't come. My poked the mic come. And she cut his head off. And he couldn't speak. And <laughs> she pulled him in, you know, like it was him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come in, come in. Everything's fine in here. Lots of good eating. <laughs> come in. Well, well, then he come. Another one. She done it the same way. Mm -hmm. And, oh, come on, come on, it's fine. And she said, come on, man. She killed six. Well, there's one of them that uh, come under the law. Well, the seven, several of them come under the law. Now, in Arkansas, it used to be an Indian <clears throat> nation. They're all now tame. Well, she got in love with him, and there was a cordon with the seventh one that come there that night. And they met at the place to be married. And there's a, a close to a water course, a river, and there's a wooden trail there. Well, he said, that it was one of them men you killed. Did he have blue eyes? She said, yes. He said, that is my brother. He said, I've done all this now just to kill you. Well, she had on her wedding dress, and she said, turn your back, I don't want to be killed, and on the dress, your brother on my dress. And she had a, a gun on her, but he didn't know it. He turned his back, and no, he said to her, since you killed six, and you'll be the seventh. Well, then he told, she told him to turn her back, and when he turned his back, she just pulled out a ball, and he says, I killed six, and you'll make the seventh. And, then, and down he went. She shot him. Mm -hmm. Did he go into the river or the water? I think he did. I mm -hmm. think he came in the river. From interviews we've heard and from what we've read in old issues of Come For To Sing, it seems like George and Jerry became especially close with Frank Prophet. Um, and in 1961, the University of Chicago held their first um, University of Chicago Folk Festival. And they were looking for authentic performers of folk music from around the country. George suggested his friend, Frank Prophet. And they did invite him. And here, Jerry talks about Frank's performance there at the festival, um, which marked his first appearance in front of a large festival audience. One of the people who came up to the first annual University of Chicago Folk Festival was Frank Prophet. He came with his friend Frank Warner, who used to go down and collect from him. And um, Frank Prophet had never been to a big city and sung on a stage with that big an audience, and he was petrified. But uh, he insisted Frank Werner sit on stage with him, and he almost had his back to the audience. He was just 
zeroing in on his friends with whom he felt comfortable. And he did a wonderful program. He, he didn't sing all the verses of anything. He wasn't sure these people would be interested, but they were fascinated. They gave him a standing ovation practically, and he developed as a performer very rapidly because he had the talent. And um, he was a very dignified person, and people didn't realize that he was also petrified. They assumed it was just his mountain man dignity that kept him so stiff. <laughs> One thing that I find so beautiful about uh, about George and Jerry Armstrong is that their work, their musical work, seems so inextricably tied to their their relationship to each other um, and their relationships to people, and that music was so much about relationships between people for them. Um, and I think one of the greatest examples, I mean, I mean, even how they met uh, through the playing of traditional music backstage at WFMT, you know, Gay Gordon's, the whole story, until they, when they were married, they took a honeymoon to Scotland and England uh, in 1954 and extended it and into a folk song collecting trip. Their first field recording trip. A.K.A. their honeymoon, <laughs> which is just amazing. Um, and... Yeah, that says a lot. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't until uh, 1960 that they started traveling to the southern Appalachians with their two little girls. Um, and it was a family affair, and which just seems yeah. so... It was just like, you know, a lot of folks take trips with the family, but they just took trips and uh, went places not everyone went mm -hmm. and had friends in maybe some different places and mm -hmm. happened to record uh, music from those places and not only record it, but learn it at the same moment that they were recording it. Yeah. Which is what we find to be compelling and different about what they did. Um, and it was also this, I'm, it was very much a sharing process between them and whoever they were visiting, um, which yeah. is also amazing. So, yeah, they would sing with, when they visited Uncle Monroe, they would sing with him and he would sing for them. But they also shared songs that they knew. In a garden a bright young sailor came walking by. He stepped up to her on purpose to view her. For he said, Fair maid, could you fancy I? It's seven long years since I courted a sailor. It's seven long years since he went away. It's seven long years since I courted a sailor. But he'll come back and he'll marry me. Oh, maybe he's married, or perhaps he's drowned. Or maybe he sails on the ocean wide. Oh, if he's married, I wish him pleasure. And if he's drowned, I hope him rest. But if he sails on the wide blue ocean, then he'll come back. 
recordings of the Beach Mountain Trip, right after they sing this beautiful song, um, Uncle Monroe asks Jerry, he says, like, you know, where are your people from? What's your maiden name? Like, did you sing and dance? And she says, my dad was in vaudeville. And they're just getting, getting to know each other further. And I think um, that was something that was really special about the way that they conducted their fieldwork. And in such a way that, honestly, fieldwork is kind of the wrong word. It was a visit it was visits to friends. They were visiting their friends. Their families were getting together. They were singing together. They were breaking bread. They were sharing gifts, stories, songs, um, which I think is really amazing. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I, it struck me listening to the recordings as just being really, really different, the nature of the, the time that was recorded with these friends of theirs. Um, and especially the fact that the kids were there seemed really sort of a sweet and different dynamic. Um, than, you know, uh, someone who set out to find something and preserve it, you mm -hmm. know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it makes me think of, th there are all kinds of, like, methodological arguments within ethnomusicology and anthropology and cultural studies and that kind of fieldwork where it's, like, does the field worker, like, do you hide yourself from the situation and, like, do you completely deny your own subjectivity and, you know, make an object out of this situation, out of this culture, out of these people, really? Um, and they just didn't do that. And, you know, they talk in these recordings and they're here and they make an impact on these people's lives. Um, and there is just, I think it, there's a separation that can happen when you have a recording device there. And it sort of bridged this gap of separation, which is really beautiful. And it's something that I think that uh, Frank and Ann Warner did a lot before the Armstrongs that I think the Armstrongs took a lot of inspiration from. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, like, they're, you know, I mean, I just, it's, it's interesting, too, because I just feel like, you know, it, going back to how we were talking about in 
how inextricably linked their work and relationship and just life as a family was. Um, that this is just something they'd be doing whether or not the recorder was there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I think that's that's important and significant. Yeah, and I think it really brings to light one of our one of our first big big questions, which was why did they do this and what yeah. were they doing? What was the point? Right. And um, in a in this beautiful article that George wrote about Frank Warner. And um, Comfort to Sing. Uh, looks like summer 1978. Yeah, and even the title of the article is, is Frank Warner, A Love Affair with Folk Songs. Um, mm-hmm. There's a beautiful quote that, uh, that George writes, But a musical tradition is not carried on by archives or books or tapes or recordings alone. It is when these songs and tunes are carried in the mind and heart that they truly live. Now the moon shines bright and the stars give light, but this fair myth she worries alone. There is something in the way that has caused him to say, while this fair myth she worries alone, alone, alone. This fair myth she worries alone. Her own true love. Tripling through the plain. Oh, this fair miss she arose and she drew on her clothes for to let her own true lover in, 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 to let her own true lover in. My pretty crow and chicken, my pretty crow and chicken, pray don't you crow. Archives. Thanks to Colby Maddox and the Resource Center at the Old Town School of Folk Music. 
For more information about goings-on at the school, please visit www.oldtownschool.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, watch out for Mr. Fox. We will not be ashamed To turn, to turn will be our delight Till by turning, turning we come round, round Thank you very much. Good night.